Please do turn with me this morning to John's Gospel and to chapter 17, this great high priestly prayer as we call it, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first eight verses which we've considered so far, can I say this reverently, they're just an introduction. The Lord Jesus, in a sense, hasn't really started to pray. It's only in verse 9 that we read these words, I pray for them. The first eight verses, he has recited certain undeniable truths, truths which are for our benefit. They tell us things that we need to know. He's been pleading. The first thing that he pleaded was that the hour is coming the hour when he will leave this earth, the hour of his passion, when he will willingly lay down his life and he will bear a punishment of such indescribable pain, a suffering which has never been known and will never be known to man or to woman in this life. So he pleads, the occasion of his hour. The hour is come. The next day, he will die. He's going to plead his commission. Why has he been sent? It's very clear. Verse 3. The whole purpose of his life, and this should be the purpose of every believer, is for eternal life. It's not about this world. He's going to leave this world. His whole life is geared and focused upon his life to come and upon the life to come that he will give to all those that the Father has given to him. His commission, his occasion, his hour, his commission to bring eternal life. He's also pleaded to the Father of his consecration. What has he done in his life? He has manifested, revealed, declared, made plain and open the glory of the Father. How would we know about God unless the Lord Jesus Christ came and consecrated his life to make manifest. Verse 6, I have manifested thy name unto the men, especially to his disciples. He gave them a fuller understanding, but to all of his followers, he has consecrated his life. Then he tells us, that he's finished the work. He hasn't literally finished it. He's still got to go to Gethsemane. He's still got to go and die. He's got to rise again and appear so that so many people can testify of the truth and the power of the resurrection. But he can say, because he's so confident that that work will be finished, I have finished the work. He's about to go 
and wash away the sins of all his people, not those that won't believe on him, not those that won't receive his word, not those that the Father has not given to the Son. No, he will die for his people. A great, vast number of people. And he will give himself willingly. He will become the sin-bearer. In the Old Testament, there were those two goats. One was sent into the wilderness to become the scapegoat. The Lord Jesus will have the sin of all his people put on to him. When a sacrifice was given in the temple to show the Lord's acceptance of that sacrifice, he would come down. There would be fire, fire which would take up the sacrifice that was given and show the acceptance of heaven. And so as he comes to pray, he's praying that there will be acceptance, that fire will come down as it were, and his offering would be accepted. And we know it was accepted because his life was laid down and he would take it again. And heaven gave him the power to take his life again. He would give himself as a sacrifice for his people and his death was accepted. The blood was accepted. The righteousness of his perfect life was accepted for me and for you if you will put your trust in Jesus Christ. Now, as it tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 20, He's now sat down at the right hand of his father, far above all principality and power, might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but in the world that is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things. Christ's death and his resurrection were a complete success. Everything necessary for the salvation of a soul has been achieved. Now you don't need to do anything. You don't need to pray to the saints. You don't need to hold things in your hands. You don't need to sacrifice any animal. You don't need to contort your body or cut and bring blood from your arms. No, these things have all been done. Many have tried. But Christ is saying it is finished. All the powers that were against him have been conquered, and he is now risen from the dead. 
Well, I want to think of three words this morning. They really are one word from each of verse 9 and verse 10 and verse 11. The first is his prayer for them, his people. The second in verse 10 is his glory, which will be in them, his people. And the third is his desire and undertaking that his people will be kept. So first, this morning, his prayer. I pray, Christ is praying, he prays for them. Who's the them? Well, literally it means his disciples, his followers. He's going to pray for those that he's taught, those the Father has given him, but I'm sure this means more than that. He's also praying for Mary, his mother, and Mary Magdalene, and Joanna, and Salome, and all the women, and all his followers. In fact, he's praying for all who would become followers of Christ. He says, I pray for them. It's specific. I pray not for the world. He's drawing a very large distinction. He's not praying for everybody. He's praying for a certain group of people, for his people. We know it's his people because it goes on to say, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. He labors the point. There are his people And there are those who are not his people. Those who will die in their sins. There were two thieves on the cross. We'll think about this a bit more tonight. One was not one of his people. To his very dying breath, he rejected Christ. But the other... There was a total change. He started mocking and scorning and speaking badly of Christ. But when he made his final breath, there was nothing more precious than the Lord Jesus Christ. He would have given everything. He had nothing left apart from his final breath. And in that final breath, Christ was everything to him, his people. I pray for them, these people who've destroyed themselves with their sin. That's what we've done. We've willingly, consciously, knowingly made choices that are against God and against his law. And we've done it day after day after day. The disciples did that. He says, I pray for them. Those who were lost, blind, deaf, naked, broken-hearted, prisoners. That's not marginal, is it? That's not a small thing. Not partially sighted, partially deaf, a little bit undressed, Sometimes in prison, no, it's a hundred percent. 
That's how we're described. I pray for them. These people often forget to pray for themselves. I do. Do you? Do you pray for yourself? If you sit in darkness, do you pray that you'll have light and understanding and freedom? Christ, in John 17, verse 9, is praying for all his people. He prays for those who forget to pray for themselves. I pray for them. He prays for people whose prayers are inadequate. That's me. People who are not good at praying. People whose prayers are weak and woeful. They lack sincerity. We don't name all our sins. We don't pray as though nothing else mattered. Christ prays for us. I pray for them. He prays for those who are needy. Look at his disciples, how needy they were. Before he died, they were just a weak, feeble people. And Christ's prayer was answered. Look at the transformation after this prayer. They become strong and bold and courageous. They go before kings and emperors and presidents and they get tossed into prison and it doesn't matter because Christ has prayed for them and his prayer has been answered. And He prays for those who Satan desires to have them, to sift them like wheat. That's what Satan desires to do to all the Lord's people. He desires to make them fall into sin every day. The Lord prays for them, his people. Notice as well in this prayer that he says, very categorically, it sounds harsh, I don't pray for them. Who's the them? The world. He names it. There's only two groups of people. I don't think you can interpret this verse in any other way. There's two groups, not three, not five, two. I pray for my own people. I don't pray for the world. Those who will always reject me. It's not that Christ doesn't have compassion. Even those that reject him, he gives them his goodness and mercy, he gives them his law, but people reject him. Willingly, intentionally. Maybe we have some this morning here. To your final breath, you will carry on rejecting him. You're not for him. I pray for them, my people. I pray not for the world, the people that are not my people. Who are the world? Do you know it's amazing how much John says in these chapters preceding John 17, 
John 13, 14, 15, 16, four chapters where the disciples are being taught. They're having a crash course before Christ leaves this world. And he says so much about the world and those who are not of the world. Galatians 1, 4, Paul says, these people are taken up by this present evil world. If you're not for God, you're being held, held by Satan in this present evil world. What a world of difference there is between the freedom that Christ gives, the abundant life that he offers, and being kept by Satan. Do you know the majority of Christianity in this country today has nothing of this distinction? It says and it teaches, and the Church of England is the worst, universalism. It says if you go to church, it says if you just outwardly subscribe to vaguely what the church teaches from time to time, even if it contradicts the Bible, if it says a man can be married to a man and a woman a woman, if it says that marriage is totally different to the word of God, if that's what you sign up to, that's fine. Because one day, everybody will go to heaven. Isn't that what the Church of England basically teaches? That there is universal salvation. It's not what Christ was praying for. He's praying for his people who have rejected this world, who said, God's law convicts me, I'm bound under Satan's rule, and I've come to the position that I desire freedom. I don't want to be of this world anymore. I want to be for Christ. What's the contrast between these two, his people and the world? They have different rulers. Christ rules the life of every Christian. If Christ doesn't rule your life, Satan does. They have different principles. A Christian says... The principle of my life is to please God. Everybody else says, if it feels good, do it. If you want to live that way, do it. If you want to be driven by your desires and lusts and the things that you've been taught by this world, just do it. There's no consequences. It's up to you. It's not what God's word says. Two different attitudes. His people receive his word willingly. They love it. And others hate it. Redefine it. Rip out the first page of it. There's two different views of Christ. This is the dividing line. What think ye of Christ this morning? Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he everything to you? Is he your saviour? 
your sin bearer. All other religion can disappear because I don't need religion. I just need Christ. And he is all the world to me. Two different homes. Are you at home in this world? If you're a Christian, this isn't your home. Heaven is your home. To be with Christ is far better. And two different destinations. You're either with God, for God, eternally, with him. Or the Bible says you're away from God, in hell, bearing the just punishment of your sin. Before we move to our second point, let me tell you some of the verses in John's Gospel. Friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. There's no half in, half out. You're either all in or you're all out. You're either a friend of the world or you're a friend of God. John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. This world hates Christ. If you're a friend of the world, you love the world that hates Christ. The Lord Jesus says in John 15, 19, I have chosen you out of the world. Both feet out and hands and heart and head. I've chosen you out of the world. Let's come to the second point, verse 10. This is a wonderful, wonderful truth. Something that's gripped my heart the last two days. All mine are thine. Christ's people are the same as the Father's people. And thine, the Father's people, are mine. But here's the bit that gets me. And I am glorified in them. That seems impossible. Me, a sinner? A fallen person? Until the day I die, I will continue to sin? And yet, Christ says, He is glorified in me. Oh no, that's impossible. I dishonor God with my body, with my mind, with my heart. We say with the hymn writer, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, how can I glorify God? Yet that's what Christ says in verse 10. I, Christ, am going to be glorified in them, those twelve disciples. Twelve? What about Judas? Did Judas glorify God? In a sense, he did. Because he showed the truth of God's word. 
that when you reject God, the consequences are terrible. And the other eleven, just look at the transformation in their life. God was glorified. Christ was glorified. Eleven men, which became twelve again. Look at them. What a transformation. Do you know in the days of old, no disciples of a dead man, that dead man, could call themselves disciples any longer. But these eleven, they were disciples for the rest of their life until they nearly all died as martyrs. Do you know in their death, they glorified their Saviour because nothing else in their life was more important than to glorify God. How are we glorified? We think of Christ's glory in creation. Oh, I can get my head round that. The beauty, the majesty, the power in creation. We think of his glory in his words. Christ's words, which have power. Just a sentence changes a life. We think of his glory in his life, his glorious life. But the Lord of glory is glorified in me? I don't understand it. I struggle to take it in. How is glory, which means to manifest, to reveal, to show? You think of a gem, and you look at it, and the glory gets brighter and better, every angle, every glimpse, and as more light shines upon it, so it becomes brighter and more glorious. How can my life be like a gemstone? My life. Yet that's what it says. Because in the life of every true believer, each day I take on more likeness of Christ. And the more like him I am, the more I glorify my Saviour. That's what Christ is saying here. I am glorified in these Twelve weak disciples, and as I die and I rise again, and my church goes to the, all the ends of the earth, I will be glorified in them. Look at that church now, 2,000 years later. They tried to stamp it out, to outlaw it, to demolish it, to show violence to it. They try to redefine it, they try to weaken it, to dilute it, and today there are more Christians in the world today than there's ever been. And the church is stronger than it's ever been. It doesn't seem like it in this country, but the Bible is in more languages than it's ever been. And more people worship Christ today than ever before. Christ's church is being built and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
And every single person that comes out of darkness into light is a wonder of grace. You think of what we once were. You think of your own life if you know Christ this morning. What could you have become? Think of the addictions that Christ took you out of. Yes, you may fall back into them. You shouldn't. But think of what could have been. You could have been trapped and enslaved in that particular sin or sins for the rest of your life. You might have needed this therapy and that therapy, but Christ has made you free. And if you're free, you shall be free indeed. Wonders of grace and mercy. And he protects and he keeps and he blesses and he builds and he deepens your life so that you know more about Christ and the more you know about Christ, the more you reflect him. And people, even when you don't say a word, say, there's something different about that man and that woman. That woman in my care home, they're different. They're so kind. They're so appreciative. They're so thankful. They're not bitter and twisted. They've got a life of the experience of God's grace within their life and heart and they want to speak of him and they want to speak well of Christ. Wonders of grace and mercy and that brings glory to him. I am glorified in them. Let me ask this question. Does my life in my words and choices and actions and priorities, and the checks I sign, and the swipe card that I use my money with, does that bring glory to Christ? It should do. If you're a child of God this morning, hear Christ's words. I am glorified in them. How do we know how to live? What to do, what not to do. Am I glorifying Christ? Are people seeing him in me through my life and actions this morning? Let's go on to verse 11, and this is our third point this morning. What's Christ praying for? He prays for his own, not for the world. Verse 10 he desires and he will be glorified in them. But in verse 11, he has a specific request. It's the middle word, keep. He's praying for you and for me if I'm a child of God. And he says, and now I am no more in the world. The last three years, he's helped the disciples. When Peter was in that boat and he proudly and arrogantly and ambitiously tried to walk on the water and he fell down because he took his eyes off Christ and the Lord picked him up. Now 
He's about to leave. He won't be there next time Peter tries with his own strength. And he says, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. Christ's prayer, as he prays for his people, is that we might be kept. He doesn't want us taken out of the world. He doesn't want us transported to a world of the prosperity gospel where everything is sweetness and light and honey and roses. No, he says, keep them in a world which is broken, where there are thorns and trials and scams and difficulties. Keep them in and through thine own name. He's praying to his Father. And you know, he will answer his own prayer. Because as he rises from the dead, his task will be to keep you and me, to keep us. What does he need to keep us from? He needs to keep us from what the world says, losing your salvation. It cannot be. Christ is a liar. If anybody loses their salvation, no, none have I lost He's speaking of the eleven, but he's speaking also of every blood-bought child of God. No, they won't lose their salvation, because he will keep us. He wants to keep us from falling into hypocrisy, a double life, a private life and a public life, a life on email and online. Christ would not have us to have a double life. That's hypocrisy. He wants to keep us from loving this present world like Demas did. He wants to keep us from denying the truth and falling into error, loving someone in addition to Christ. And he wants to keep us, fifthly, from disunity. What's his prayer? It's in verse 11. That we might be one with Christ. That means loving what Christ loves. Because what Christ loves, the Father loves. And therefore he's saying, I want you to love what I love and what the Father loves, because we are one. One in ambition. One in the truth. One in unity. That's the way we're to be in this church. We're not to let error and disunity come in. And Christ prays for that. But you know this won't happen in our own strength. Woe betide those of us who try, who think this church depends upon me, And my Christian life is about me and my organization and my efforts and my attempts to do things. No, our God is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. 
Our God is able. You're not able. I'm not able. It's only him. How will this happen? How will he keep us? Seven ways. There's one primary one. The word of God. That's the first one. God's word is the primary way in which we will be kept. We'll be kept by his truth. We'll be kept by his promises. And that is the primary way that we'll be kept from sin, error, disunity, hypocrisy, and anything that will cause us to fall. God's word. That's how we'll be kept. Nothing magical, nothing mysterious, not miracles. The common, ordinary reading of the word of God. Most of the time, that's what will keep you from falling. That's what will keep you in the love of God. The second one we could call is another ordinary way, the means of prayer, preaching, the Lord's table. They're ordinary. We call them the ordinary means of grace. Nothing extraordinary. You don't need a miracle every day. You don't need somebody to lay hands on you that you would be kept. No, it's the ordinary means. Thirdly, is church. Oh, that's ordinary. Look at us today, we're very ordinary. It was the ordinary common people that heard him gladly. And that's what we are today. Just an ordinary people. And yet what a help the church is. You think of all that's gone on already this morning. A man taken to hospital, people will pray for him. Those who are sick, people will pray for them. Somebody needs visiting, there'll be a visitor today for those people. There'll be an act of kindness done for somebody who's struggling. All the helps practically through his church, let alone the encouragements. That's the third means. And then the fourth means, his omnipotent hand. Well, this is a combination of that which is natural and ordinary and that which is extraordinary. Think of Noah. How was Noah saved? How was he rescued? He was already a believer, but the floods came and the distresses came and the waters rose up. What saved him? A boat. A wooden boat, which with his own hands, obeying the instructions he was given, that was the means, partially, of saving him. But it wasn't really. It was the Lord's omnipotent hand, working through the agency of wood and a boat and labor that kept dear Noah, God's omnipotent hand. But there's a fifth means. It's mentioned here. Verse 11. Kept through thine own name. Do you know what keeps me from falling? 
What helps me in life every day is God's name. He's got many names. His names are rich and glorious. His names speak of loyalty, of an unchanging character, of the great I am, of the one who was the same, is the same, and will always be the same. How can he allow you to fall? It would be against his name. And so he will keep us. And the sixth way is through his Spirit indwelling within us. Every believer has the Holy Spirit. It's not their own power, it's God's power. And his Spirit gives us a hatred of the world, a hatred of sin, a love for Christ, a love for his word. And through the indwelling of that Spirit, we will be kept. And the final one is faith. Faith. Faith which is a gift from God. And all we have to do is exercise it. I don't work up saving faith. I don't work up living faith. My faith is in Christ. And all that he has done. And if he would go to Calvary for me. And if he would give his life for me. Won't he keep me? Through all the floods. And all the distresses of life. His power sometimes supernaturally. Will save me. And rescue me. And he will come in for me and meet with me in ways that I can't explain. He will come for me. And that's the balance. It's not a miracle every time that God keeps me. No, it's through the ordinary means usually, but sometimes the extraordinary is what keeps me. Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. The Lord will keep you. The Lord will make his face to shine upon you. The Lord will be gracious unto you.